Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm Shanali Basic, and joining me now is Ken Mollis, CEO of Mollis & Company. Thank you so much for joining us, Ken. Great to be here. So you've been on a world tour. <laughs> you just came back from Russia, where you had a panel with Putin. What was the big takeaway? Well, it was interesting. You know, it's hard to get good information, and I, I, you do these things because my job is to get as much information about the global economy as you can. So there was a lot of takeaways about it, just getting up to speed on, on, on the Moscow economy and how the sanctions are affecting it and what they're doing. Um, so I, I thought it was good to um, put that information in, in the back of your mind and keep it in mind as you advise companies. Are they the next place for you to be doing the next big deal? No, no. Russia is a long, I think it's a while in the future. But look, it's a long life. I've been doing this 40 years. And, you know, uh, friends last a long time, loyalties, you get to know people. Um, and, you, and look, it's a long time, I think, before an American company will be, uh, Russia will be investable. But someday, maybe. You were also recently in spending a lot of time in Hong Kong with the Hong Kong Stock Exchange proposed takeover of the London Stock Exchange. What is the tone there right now? Are you worried about what's going on there? You know, I've been around the world a lot. I haven't been to Hong Kong in a while. But uh, look, the, what's ha happening in Hong Kong is definitely uh, concerning. But again, the, the world, it, it, it's getting to be, uh, I think, what happened with Trump and uh, the China and the trade war calming down will be positive. Um, and again, things are long. These, there's a lot of issues. You go back over, again, I've been doing this 40 years. There's always been major issues. But we, we tend to get through these. And actually, business is one of the key events that keeps peace and things moving in the world. People in business want to do uh, transactions with each other, want to get to know each other. And it, it kind of supersedes the cycle of almost politics. By the way, with so much time in Russia and China right now, what does that say about where you think power is shifting in the world? Again, don't overdo Russia. I was there for a brief time to, <laughs> you know, to get some information. Um, look, it's, it's, there's obviously China's important, but you know, it's interesting. We're just thinking about the United States was 23% of world GDP 10 years ago. And if you would have bet that the United States would have been larger or smaller, given the rise of the BRICS and all those economies, I think we're up to 25%. So there's a lot of hand wringing in the United States, but we went from 23 to 25% of world GDP. The U.S. has great laws, it's got great capital markets, it's got innovation, it's still a tremendous place. When you listen to Trump speak this week, and you, you know Trump, right? You've worked with Donald Trump before. How are world leaders um, receiving his message here in Davos? Well, look, uh, they, do, they receive it in different ways. But I think the thing that, that he did do, that President Trump did when he got here, was at least very carefully tell the story, and it's hard to get it sometimes, that the U.S. economy is booming. We do have 3% unemployment. There are so many good things going on. We are deregulating. There are lots of things in the policies that are generating substantial rewards for business and people and, and for everybody. And I know sometimes you can get caught up in the tweets and the presentations. But if you, if you really, and, and I think he did a good job of just calming that down and saying, look what we're accomplishing. And... I, I do think the policies have been good for business. What do you think his prospects are, given that you called his last election? What do you think his prospects are for this upcoming one? Well, look, it's too early to tell we don't have a candidate. You know, uh, in order to call a good fight, you have to know who, you're, who, the, who the other side is. So I'm going to wait on that. I think, I think there's lots to go in the, in the primaries and uh, lots of stories to be told over the next six or seven months. So I'll wait. I'll wait. Let's wait and see who it's between. The other thing that everyone's talking about here in Davos, at least publicly, is sustainability and green initiatives. But three times just today I've had bankers tell me that we're talking about green too much here. And so I'm kind of wondering what you're hearing. What do you think is the opportunity or is it realistic for the financial industry and BlackRock, which is leading the charge here, to make real change? So that's a complicated question. And let me say this. Look, we have to advise our clients on how to navigate in an environment where, look, ESG and all and environment's going to be part of what they're held accountable for. Now, does sometimes Davos uh, go overboard on some of the uh, requirements and things that they're talking about? Sure. People ask me why I go to Davos, and I say sometimes to find out exactly what the consensus is so I know what won't happen. 
and, and do the opposite. Um, because, you know, it's an extremely consensus atmosphere here. And, um, but look, people are going to have to deal with the fact that large institutions like BlackRock and, and like rating agencies and, and government institutions will be monitoring certain environmental, social governance checklists. And we're going to have to, we're going to, have to help our clients through that. Well, you advised Aramco. Where does that fit into the situation here? Look, the world is going to continue to use and need cheap energy. You know, there's 500 million Europeans, there's 300 million Americans, 350. There's six or seven billion people in the world who still are, are struggling. And the access to cheap fossil fuels, it, look, it's, it's their life. You know, India, China, Africa, they're not, they're, not gonna, they're not as worried about the environment yet as they are about, you know, making ends meet and, 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 and life. So I think the fact that uh, what worries me about this is the severe pressure on fossil fuels and the severe pressure not to invest in developed countries, uh, I think might lead to a shortage sooner than we think. Ken, real quick, what do you think the next big market risk is as we sit in Davos today? Uh, look, I just think markets are priced pretty much for perfection. And you don't have to know. This is something I've learned over many years. People spend too much time trying to predict the event. All you have to do is know that there probably will be one. I've learned you don't have to know what it is. You just have to know that one will happen. This year? I, you know, it, it may be this year. But look, I was saying today if Lehman Brothers had made it through that one market, that one year, they'd probably be a $150 billion market cap company today. So you can't get taken out. You have to know that risk is possible um, and you have to plan for it. And, um, but you don't want to know exactly what the risk is. You just have to know you can survive it. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. Here's the evident idea. You can talk all you want up a happy valley in Switzerland. You got to go out there and do it. And if you do it, You've got to move it. And the obvious, most visible thing out there to move it is something four Liverpool football fields <laughs> long. And what, is it truly a football field I wide? Think, are you speaking of the masked Triple E? This would be the boat, the boats, the ships that move all this stuff around. To me, the most articulate voice on this in shipping and the serious idea of climate change and the logistics and trade of the world is Mr. Scoo of Maris, the chief executive officer, Soren Scoo, joins us. Uh, now, we talk often in London, thrilled to have you here. How do you respond to the visible elites of climate change who don't realize you've got to get the boxes in Asia from point A to point B? Well, first, I always say that the shipping is actually the most environmentally free, uh, environmentally way of moving any, any type of good. So the CO2 emission that we have per any ton of good moved is, is quite low compared to road and rail and, and air. But uh, it, we, we still take on uh, the challenge of wanting to reduce our CO2 footprint. And we have articulated more than a year ago uh, an ambition to get to zero uh, CO2 by, by 2050. And we have uh, solid plans for how to get How do you plan to do that? Talk to us about those plans. Well, we want to find it. I mean, the obvious is we need to find a different kind of fuel. Uh, and we believe that we, we have uh, uh, fuels that, that are probable, uh, alcohols, ammonia, bio-methane uh, me that can be produced yeah. from uh, alternative sources. This is important because it's about the fuel and not about the ship. Because you're in a really, really tough spot. You have to plan a decade, multi-decades multi ahead from where you are right now. So it's not as simple as saying we're going to build a whole load of new ships. Walk me through the strategic thinking around issues like that. Well, we, we believe, first of all, that we have an, uh, a responsibility as a leader in the industry to drive the agenda. Secondly, as you say, uh, you know, we, we, we own assets that have a 25-year lifespan. I cannot be caught up by a regulation that tells me to do something completely different when, I'm, when, I'm, when we operate mm. more than 700 ships. So, so we need to, we need mm. to think, think ahead. You are front and center in this new world. Someone suggested President Trump has moved aggressively from a multilateral Maersk world where trade gets done to some form of bilateral world or almost a mercantile system. How is your business changed with not the trade war, but the many trades war, the new trade dynamic? How's it changed? Well, clearly uh, growth is down. Uh, up to the financial crisis, 25 years leading up to the financial crisis 10 years ago, 
trade was growing 7, 8, 9, 10 percent per year, trade liberalization and so on. And since then, we have seen much lower levels of growth. And in last year, we believe probably the numbers when they're all said and done will come in at slightly less than 2 percent growth. It's a very low number. You expect that to pick up? You think improving business in the new year? I, I don't think that we'll see much higher trade growth. The, it's just going to stay the same. Yes. Despite the fact that we have some kind of trade truce between the United States and China. And China. What we see in our numbers based on the commodities that are being shipped is that actually all of the consumer goods are holding up quite fine across the world. It's the capital goods that are not moving, and that's because business leaders like myself are worried about the future and we invest less. In your Denmark, and folks, I want to make clear, Denmark is the space of economics, of geography in the world. It's the best academics on this that there is. There is the geography of the South China Sea of Singapore, of Indonesia, and that romantic strait that you're, you've got to get your boats through that strait at night at any time, that must be extraordinary. Give us an update on the ability to move Maersk ships from point A to point B in the South China Sea in the Pacific. Today we are seeing uh, no, no, no impediments or any restrictions or anything that we need to be concerned about. You're right, the Malacca Strait between Singapore and Indonesia is a very na- narrow channel, but, but as, as of today we don't see any problems there. You said trade is better basically where it was last year, don't really see it improving. Let's talk about rates, container rates. You're speaking to your big clients. What have they said so far? What do rates look like and how are things going to evolve in a year ahead? Freight rates have gone up quite substantially since uh, the 1st of October last year, uh, mainly because we have switched over to a cleaner fuel uh, on, on the 1st of January, and mm-hmm. we're passing that on to the, to the customers. Well, 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 let's cut to the chase. We're going to have to make some news here. How do your customers receive the new invoice? Well, uh, you know, it's always a procurement discussion, but at the end of the day, I believe that many, many, many of our customers recognize that it's good for everybody that we go to a cleaner, uh, cleaner fuel. Quick final question, just before we let you go. If we can get the mass stock out there for people to just to have a look at. And for our listeners on radio, I'm going to tell you, it is several digits long. Some people always ask me, when are they going to do a stock split? When will mess do a stock split? This is getting ridiculous now. When well, are you going to do a stock split? I can just say we don't have any plans to do a stock split. Okay, we'll leave it there. Soren Scoop of Mesk, the CEO. Look at the numbers. For our listeners on, on radio, several digits long in Danish krona. We can do digits on radio. That works. Soren Scoop, just thank there you so much. about his plans for the future. The President of the United States just pulling a pin and lobbing a grenade into this conference yesterday, and it was a total 180 from what we thought we heard from the administration the day before. We can get real reaction from Europe now with Mark Rutte, the Dutch Prime Minister. Prime Minister, great to see you. Good to see you again. Your annual visit with Tom and myself. It's great to see you. How do you respond to the President of the United States? Positively, because uh, he also had a very successful meeting with Ursula von der Leyen. She is the new EU Commission President. They agreed that it was a good meeting, that they will continue the dialogue as soon as possible. I've had myself many conversations with Trump on trade. I always found him very pragmatic and very practical. He has his irritations about Europe. We have some issues with uh, the US, but that is not a problem. That's why you have to negotiate. I think we can get a deal done. I wonder if you're more annoyed with France than you are the United States at the moment, because it's the policies of France that are causing much of the problem. Secretary Mnuchin said the following this week, if people want to just arbitrarily put taxes on our digital companies, we will consider arbitrarily putting taxes on car companies. Yeah, but that is a discussion about digital tax. I think best will be to deal with the issue of digital tax in the context of the OECD. Uh, it can also be part of the talks between yeah. the US and uh, Europe. But don't forget, the US is the number one economy in the world and the most powerful country. But in terms of overall economic size, is Europe is bigger. We are one and a half right. times the size of the US. So when they deal with China, it's not about first place, it's about second But place. Prime Minister, you bring up a key point. Montana has the same voice in President Trump as Mississippi. There are many voices of your Europe. What is the most efficacious way for Europe to speak to the President of the United States on trade? Uh, directly and forthright. Uh, with Trump, you have out to be Brussels very clear. And out of Strasbourg? I mean, who's the voice that's going to sit across the table from the President that of the United That is the President States? of the European Commission, because this is a European thing. And we are united in the European Union on trade. We always have one of the, one of the few very successful things we are doing. I mean, we have very many issues in Europe about climate change, about yeah. migration. But one of the consistently successful things we are dealing with as a European Union is trade. 
Uh, and we have to work in with one voice. We are doing that also with the UK when they are leaving from the end, uh, from next week onwards. We have to create a new trade deal. So I'm optimistic about it because we know what is important for Trump. We know it is important for for Europe, uh, and we are both pragmatic. Well, there are some and, easy and, things to do. And the rhetoric do. in the run-up is always part of that. There are some easy things to do. One of them is just look at the tariffs on autos. If you import a car out of the United States into Europe, 10%. If you import a passenger car out of Europe into the United States, the tariff is. Two and a half percent. Yeah, but on, SU, much higher, but on SUVs, it's trucks are much higher, twenty-five percent, which goes back decades. So on average, can is, we address is, this? Yeah, can we just equalise the whole thing? Well, I discussed that with Trump myself, and 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 on average, it is about nine percent from a car coming out of the out of Europe. The two and a half, twenty-five put together is about nine percent, and a car coming out of the US is ten percent. So it is already almost the same. This is not a big issue. I, I think we can deal with this. As I've asked before this morning, I want you to identify what the new capitalism will be for Europe. The Dutch have led on capitalism for well in excess of 400 years as well. Do you sense with the solution of Brexit, do you sense with some form of trade agreement with the United States, a less multilateral approach, mm -hmm. that there has to be a new capitalism out of Europe, a not new a attitude? New no, not a new capitalism, but we have to learn from the past. Com Dutch companies like Shell, Unilever, Philips, AXO, they always were both successful internationally oriented companies, but also very much rooted in the local communities in the countries which they were serving. And there still are. I'm still very proud of these companies. Some of the companies recently uh, coming into place have less of a connection to the local communities. Uh, do not fully realize that next to making a nice profit, there is also a societal impact as a company. And the good you can do in terms of uh, making sure that and uh, the changes oh. to the environment are not taking place and the role you can play there. And I believe you should put more emphasis on, emphasis on that. As John mentions the French and the challenges Mr. Macron has domestically or the transition of power after the Merkel era in Germany, what part can the Netherlands play to provide a center to yeah. Europe, a more co, 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 a, a more coalescing capitalism? Well, we believe that with the UK leaving, we're one of the countries with the most international outlook, the most trade-oriented, the most free enterprise-oriented countries. We work very closely together with the can, uh, Scandinavian EU countries, with the Baltic countries, with Slovenia, with um, um, Ireland, but also with Belgium and Luxembourg within the Benelux. Uh, that is a mm -hmm. powerful group of countries who all share this outlook on capitalism, on international trade. At the same time, we have a strong bilateral relationship with Germany, with France. Right. I was last week in Italy. We are building a strong relationship with the Italian government, a, a bilateral relationship within the EU, because this is needed to maintain that, that outlook on the world with yeah. the UK leaving. We're pushed for time. Let's get the UK leaving into the conversation. You're very pragmatic, in fact, respectful of the US administration, and that's encouraging about ultimately coming to a positive outcome with the United States. Are you equally the same with the UK at the moment? Well, I have one worry. And what is that, that is the time we have available, because uh, they will leave formally next week, but basically they won't leave at all. They will only leave the political structures. Yep. They will still be part of everything else in the EU till the end of the year. And in the meantime, we have to solve this trade deal. But for this trade deal to be uh, solved, we need to agree on level playing field and all the other issues. It's an awfully short amount of time. So uh, I hope that coming next summer, uh, June, July, that Boris Johnson will at least contemplate extending, if necessary, uh, this transition phase. At the moment, he's not. At the moment, he's not. But also here, I would say, let's take this step by step. So you're just saying it's inconceivable that you can come to the trade not agreement? Not inconceivable, but it's very difficult. So, and then you, and, and there's, there's still the oh. risk, in the worst case, that you have a cliff-edge scenario, oh. like we uh, had experienced last is, year. This is a nightmare scenario. Because what we're going to end up with at Heathrow is Virgil van Dyke is not going to be able to go through customs <laughs> exactly. like he can now. I yeah. mean, let's bring it. The gentleman from Braden Groningen, he's got to get up to Liverpool, and there yeah. he is stuck at Heathrow in the new customs that is line. Unacceptable. Unacceptable. That's unacceptable. Unacceptable. He will return to the Netherlands. For our U.S. audience, can we explain who Virgil <laughs> van Dyke is? Well, I know Probably who he is because I've been lectured to. The greatest centre-bank in football at the moment. One of the great players in, in the, the Dutch world. team. Absolutely the reason why we will win the European Championship. You think you're going to win? Absolutely. No really? Doubt. No doubt. A couple of injuries. <laughs> Not worried at all. Yeah, that, this still, goes that's down. also part of it. And, and they hopefully will be back in time. 
this goes to the, uh, we're going to have to talk about this later <laughs> on the Dutch Prime Minister's next visit to New York and London. We'll I, I just love that this, we have the Dutch Prime discussion. Minister with us and we end up talking about your favorite topic. I love watching, he's like Aaron Judge of the New York Yankees, he's, he's, he's out of body. Fantastic, he's something else. Margaret, great to catch up with you once again. Good to be here. The Dutch Prime Minister in Davos. He doesn't wait in line at, at the World <laughs> Economic Forum. Prime Minister does not wait in line. Well, he goes through that special lane, doesn't he? Goes, lane, does when I travel privately, I wait in line. Goes through that when I would travel line. through Boris Johnson official capacity, <laughs> I would be, well, hoovered around. But in a private capacity, I have to wait in the same line as you. Pharaoh's the gig is. With us for a good conversation of international finance, but also strength of the emerging markets and some of the weaknesses is the chief executive of Standard Chartered. He's Bill Winters, as always. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. We, uh, every time, quiz you on Hong Kong and whether you've seen money flows, wealthy clients wanting to move their bank accounts out. Uh, give us an update on that. Yeah. First of all, nice to be here. Uh, Hong Kong's in good shape, right? I mean, it's, it was a horrific six months uh, and culminating in, in a really horrific period of, of violence in, in December. Uh, but uh, while the issues are, are as yet unresolved, and, and we know that, so, so the idea that this is behind us uh, would, would be hopeful uh, but naive. Uh, but peace is prevailing in, in Hong Kong, and, and, uh, and that's very encouraging. So what we saw through the, through, through the worst of the, of the period was some people, frankly, very few on a percentage basis, made some provisions to move their money someplace else, opening an account someplace, uh, but, but virtually none of them actually moved their money. So, 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 so the, the, the business activity has stayed very strong in Hong Kong. So as, Hong Kong is a, as a trading hub, Hong Kong is a financial center, and we see it from the IPO calendars, and is, is very strong. And they haven't missed a beat in that regard. The hospitality, the retail sectors, uh, tourism have been severely impacted. Uh, obviously, a big chunk of the tourism came from mainland China. It will take a while uh, for, for them to come back. Uh, they had a bad experience uh, when they were in Hong Kong. And, uh, and the rest of the world has, has stayed away while things were, were unsettled. Now that, that peace is, has, is breaking out as, as it persists, as, as we hope it does, I think Hong Kong will get back to normal in, uh, over the course of this year. Uh, moments ago, China has taken steps to actually cancel some of the festivities, lunar festivities, yeah. because of the coronavirus. Yeah. As a big chief executive in the region, how do you monitor and, and how do you prepare for it? Well, it's concerning. I mean, we, we first start by, uh, by making sure that, that our own colleagues are taking the proper precautions and safe. Uh, so uh, you can imagine the level of anxiety is very, very high. If somebody gets a cold now, it's uh, it, there's a question whether whether something much worse, and that, that can cause the whole office to, to lock down. So that's uh, we start start at home. Mm -hmm. uh, we're trying to stay very close to our clients, uh, help them understand what their exposures are. Obviously, people in, in, the, in the transportation and, and, and tourism industry themselves are at, at some risk uh, within China, especially coming into Chinese New Year. Uh, so. Trying to help identify working capital needs or, or challenges that will come up if, if things progress as they have over the past 24 hours. Other than that, uh, we we're watching with the rest of the world and, and hoping. But do you have operations that, that could be directly affected? Yeah, we do. No, my, my, I, I was uh, intending to be in Wuhan next week. Uh, I mean, that was we have a, we have a very substantial operation in Wuhan and Chongqing and Xi'an, uh, you know, all through Western China. And uh, uh, yes, yeah, so they're directly affected. So are you speaking with, with uh, health officials on, on the ground there, or who are you? My, my colleagues, my colleagues in yeah. China are speaking with health officials continuously. But as, you, as you've seen and as you've reported, it's a very fast-moving uh, set of facts. I mean, even even today, yeah. we've we've had material, new pieces of news. Uh, but uh, but we, we, we have our own intelligence on the ground as well from our clients and from our people, and it's it's very consistent with what we're hearing yeah. uh, from the government. So and I'm, I'm encouraged by this commitment to transparency. I could only encourage it to continue. Uh, are you encouraged by U.S.-China phase one deal, or actually is phase one nothing because it's it's uh, simply an understanding that you know things won't escalate for now? No, it's, it's encouraging because it's it, they demonstrated that they can agree on something, and uh, it, it, it has stopped a cycle of escalation. That's a good thing. There's a bit of, of, of clawback in terms of tariffs and, and protection of intellectual properties and opening up the financial services markets. These are all good things. Uh, does it solve the problem? No, of course not. The, the, the structural issues are, are still there. Uh, but the fact that the two sides have, have, have demonstrated a willingness to, to agree on some things, we have to take as encouraging. Does it help Standard Charter? When, with the tariffs going up, uh, there was no particular impact on Standard Charter, so coming down there won't be either. Uh, what, what is, what's challenging is, is the, the, the prospect, the uncertainty around this prospect of a, of a bifurcated world. Uh, with, the, with our customers and our clients not really knowing how much they have to reconfigure their supply chains, 
And if you don't know what you need to do, you tend to prepare for the worst, uh, which usually means a lot of wasted cost and, and investment. So, uh, so the, the, the increasing uncertainty was a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, it's come off a little bit, but the uncertainty hasn't improved too much. Uh, President Trump was here yesterday. He spoke to a number of business leaders. I think you were in some of those meetings. Mm. What was the message coming from the U.S. administration? I mean, the key message I took away from, from the messages was that he's running for president of the United States. Uh, so it, the, the message would seem to be quite targeted at, at the domestic audience. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I'd say that the themes in Davos have overwhelmingly been uh, sustainability. I mean, to the point that it's like probably crowded out some other very important discussions like uh, the, the challenges around inequality. But the traction on, on, on sustainability has been very impressive, I think. So, you know, hardcore commitments in terms of, of the metrics that we'll be using to measure progress. Uh, and, and I say specifically, you know, what does my business contribute to, the, to this climate change uh, dynamic? And what can I do about it? And then specific commitments from corporations and a willingness, uh, I know, across the banking industry. I was chairing a session yesterday where we focused a lot on what the banks could do collectively right. to address the sustainability question. So, I mean, those are the messages coming out of Davos. And then there was some noise on the side. Okay. If you look at markets, what is the one thing we had geopolitical concerns, uh, you know, regarding Iran and Iraq, um, U.S.-China trade is still at the forefront, U.S. elections, which you kind of mentioned. Out of those three, what's the biggest risk for the markets? I think the, the big structural risk, because it, it, it's, it's very impactful and, and as yet unresolved, although in a peaceful zone right now, is, is the U.S.-China tensions. Iraq, Iran, U.S., Saudi uh, is, has the possibility to explode. Right now, that's, that feels unlikely. I mean, it feels like there's been a, a dramatic escalation and then quick de-escalation. Uh, and, uh, and certainly the, the, what I can pick up through the hallways, and it's just, you know, I think everybody's got their views. Uh, there, there's a, a genuine willingness on all sides to try to de-escalate uh, at this point. So, uh, but of course, if that changed uh, and, and it impacted all flows through the, through the straits, then we'd be in a very different place. Uh, so. I, 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 so we, to me, it still comes back to U.S.-China and, and getting some real progress there. Uh, we're moments away from the ECB decision. Are central banks exhausted? Or are they running out of ammunition? I, well, I, think the, I don't think they're running out of ammunition, but I think the ammunition is, is a little bit less effective. So, I mean, of course, there, there's new rounds of quantitative easing or there's new, new types of assets that, that central banks could buy. Uh, to affect credit spreads or, or even affect equity prices at a point. Uh, but it seems to be a, an exercise with diminishing returns. Uh, so I, I don't think they're out of tools by any means, but they might have to use more of those tools if they feel the need to use those tools at all. Right, but we've heard uh, President Lagarde of the ECB trying to put pressure on fiscal. If you were to quantify 2020, if we had one, you know, uh, one monetary policy or one fiscal policy, would it be you know, government spending more? And does that actually give you more business? No, if there's, if there's a lesson that we've learned from developing markets through the years, it's that, that uh, aggressive fiscal programs targeted at things that really improve the quality of an economy, so infrastructure, education, healthcare, those things are, are typically a really good use of money, especially when you're funding it with very low cost debt, which is what we have right now. Fiscal deficits that are, that are being used to, to drive consumption give you a sugar high, uh, but don't, don't structurally improve the ability of the economy to, to grow and, and strengthen. So uh, I think to, to the extent that the U.S. and, and Germany, so the two guys with the biggest fiscal firepower right now, step up their fiscal spending, but focus on, on these, these structural value creators, that could be a very important complement to monetary policy. But there's a little noise that actually Germany is, is ready to spend, what a, what a lot of people ask of them. Well, they're under a lot of pressure. Uh, I, I don't know if they've, they've internalized that yet. Okay, the negative rates, how, how much of, um, I mean, every bank is complaining about negative rates, yeah. but actually, do policymakers understand that, that this could not only lead to, to uh, really testing the banking models even further, but actually social like unrest? I think policymakers have to be very careful about what they say, but I can't imagine that they don't know that it's not just bad for the banking system, it's, it's very bad in terms of creating uh, imbalances in the economy and imbalances in capital markets, yeah. that when they unwind, it could be quite dangerous. And since it's clearly part of the, the central bank's mandate is financial stability, they know that this, this is, a, is, is another kind of drug that is also having diminishing returns and that, that is piling up a, quite a substantial problem for the future. Yeah. Uh, very quickly on your turnaround plan, is it, too, is it you know, time to say mission accomplished? Yeah, you never say mission accomplished, and, and it's not accomplished. Uh, but, but what I can say is that, that, that our bank is, is super strong at this point. We have all the foundations that we need. We have all the growth momentum in the, in the key areas of our, our cross-border corporate business, our affluent client business, and then, then more recently our massive investments in, in digital mm -hmm. banking. All those things are working extremely well. We just have to, to, to see them through to, to uh, fruition. Bill Winters, as always, thank you so much for joining us. He's thank the you, chief President. executive of Standard Charter.
Stacey Cunningham joins us. She's gone a little bit better than internship as president of the New York Stock Exchange. We are thrilled to have you here. Thanks, Tom. Uh, it was the American morning. dream. It is. It was when you were a kid in a financial family, that was like the coolest. What was it like the first day when you were an intern on the floor so of the I, exchange? So I actually, before I walked onto the stock exchange floor, I never thought about finance. It wasn't something I wanted to do. But those first minutes, the first 15 minutes, I knew it was what I wanted to do with my life. I loved it. I loved the pace. And I, I love the energy and, you know, I love what capitalism delivers for this country. And I think that's what we should be talking about, because I think that that's where we need well, a little bit of a tune-up. Do you think anyone is defending capitalism at this conference? Well, no, no. And that's the point. I think what I'm hearing at this conference is we have to tell our stories better. And I think capitalism does not is not immune from that. Yeah. Right. Capitalism has been the engine that has been the growth of the, you know, really fueling the growth of the United States. But it needs a tune-up. We need to make sure that right. the American dream is a story of shared success. And so we got to get companies out pri uh, from private to public sooner so that others can share in their wealth creation. And we need to talk about the good that those companies are doing by creating jobs and giving back to their communities. One of the great voices of the NYSE is a guy named Ken Polkari. He's been great, loyal, visible, smart on the markets. Great. He and I remember another time. Is the New York Stock Exchange of today anything like what you knew as an intern? And where's it going to be in five years? Yeah, we kept the best parts of the New York Stock Exchange and we brought together modernization where we could automate the parts that, that really just should be automated. And so we really believe strongly that the combination of people and technology is so much more powerful. Are you keeping Arthur Levitt happy with best price? Yes, I mean, I, yes. Explain that yes. for our audience. The folks on radio and television, this is wicked important. You hear Arthur Levitt, the former chairman of the SEC with us on Bloomberg Surveillance, and he's always talking about the execution. Explain why the execution now is different than before Ken Polkari had a beard. One of the things that you want to make sure is that when somebody wants to buy or sell a stock, they can go out and see what is the value. And nothing values a company better than the public markets. But price is an important part of that. And so the exchanges are the ones that set that price. And even though market trading has changed and 40% of the market is trading in dark and not contributing to that price, they're actually taking those prices that you, the exchange is set to determine where to trade. And those are the same exact prices that a retail investor logging into their See, Fidelity, E-Trade, Ameritrade. See, uh, she just, you just slipped through trading in the dark. Yeah. You trade in the dark? What is trading in the dark? That's jargon. Trading, we don't do yes. jargon so, here. So, so what that is, is if you are showing your prices to the world to see, yeah. so that when someone logs into their online trading account on their or Bloomberg. calls their broker on their Bloomberg terminal yes, and they get their prices, their Bloomberg terminal is showing the best price in the market. Stacey, you're making the argument that companies should stay, stop staying in private markets for so long and come public. Yes. A lot of people would understand that argument coming from you. Why? And why are direct listings going to be such an important part of this process? So the two, two great questions. The first one is why should they be public sooner? And there are a lot of conversations around why they're staying private longer. And you can talk about that. It's capital. It's, 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 it's regulation. It's all these things. But with the downsides to the fact that they're staying private means there's less discipline and governance in companies, which at a much larger company, that's much more impactful. There is less uh, clarity around valuation. So are these companies worth what the private markets are saying? Or do you need the wisdom and the disclosures and transparency yeah. of the public markets to determine that? And it's creating a bifurcation of wealth. Let's talk about pressure, the pressure on you guys at the moment. We've had the likes of Larry Fink of BlackRock talk about leaning on the active management world to lean out of some companies, let's say, in coal. The pressure really is going to have to be put on the index providers to say to them, you need to get these companies off out of the index. That's going to make the most difference. The pressure is also going to be on the exchanges. Why allow these companies to list on your exchange? I, I think it's really important to distinct, to make sure that, that investors have access to opportunities and the right to choose. And so by putting them on exchanges and giving them information about uh, their disclosures is helpful yeah. for that they can make informed decisions. I think it's really important to recognize what are the conversations I've been having here in Davos over the past few days are from many CEOs who are saying we've been doing all of the work around ESG already because it's important to our employees. It's an important to our customers that we mm -hmm. take a stand on these issues even more so than their investors. So Stacey, them. let me ask you this because I imagine it's come up multiple times, not just at this conference, but over the last few months, maybe the last few years as well. You have minimum standards to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Minimum market cap, minimum amount of shareholders yes. as well. Why not have ESG as part of that? 
Because our, our standards are very focused on investor protections. And if those companies stay private, the conversations right. we're having are really connected, right? If we put so many standards around requirements for companies to be public, they, can, they have right. alternatives. It, it's a different dynamic than it was years ago when you actually had to come to the public markets to get money. Because there is money available in the private market right. space, we don't want investors to be denied those opportunities entirely. This is not your remit, but I want your opinion on this because it's important. Pharaoh has just recovered from the shock of losing that much money on his 8,000 shares of Uber that he bought. Don't listen to this. How do you respond when on your floor they do the song and dance of an IPO or even a, even a secondary, but particularly yep. initial public offerings, and they come out and they do the whole modern media dance and the thing goes down X percent? That's not good for the brand, is it? I think we should keep in mind that in a large, uh, a large IPO like that, they, they, they sold $8 billion worth of stock, and it opened at a price and stayed right there. Now, over time, investors were reacting to the valuation of companies, and as companies go Your public, Your job that's is to get happens. it open in the early minutes. And to make and sure that investors it. have the information. It, 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 Did they have the information yes, on those and, and you'll see, the, 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 it's a, a great example of private valuations versus public valuations. And so we need to actually make sure companies get out. And this, this, this shift, because they don't need capital, is actually why the direct listing was innovate, an innovation that we delivered this year, because it's actually not about raising money. It's about, uh, in okay, those cases. You're saying, so you're nailing, there's a private valuation, they go public in selected stocks, tank. Whose responsibility is that? It's not you. Who is it? Who's responsible for that better pricing? I think investors are asking pricing? questions that they weren't asking before, and I think that's what you're going to see in 2020, is that investors I, are I asking We're about learning. profitability and yeah. valuations. And when you have limited people participating yeah. in the private space, you're limiting yeah. access to opportunity, yeah. and you're also limiting access to information. Stacey. Yeah. Fantastic conversation. One of my kids needs a Great job as an intern us. this summer. Can we work on that? Are you looking for work? <laughs> Stacey Cunningham, NICE president. Thank you very much. From Davos, Switzerland, for our audience worldwide, alongside Tom Keane, I'm Jonathan Farrow. This is the countdown to the open on Bloomberg TV and on Bloomberg Radio. I can confirm that in Frankfurt, Germany, there is an absolute snoozer of a news conference snoozer, taking place. Snoozer, and what's great is President Christine Lagarde. everybody asking questions is asking one, two, three in a row. I don't know how she does it. If you would like to follow that, you can on the Bloomberg Terminal. If you are a Bloomberg subscriber on Live Go, let's get to price action. Around about 20 minutes out from the opening bell in New York City, we set up as follows. The pain. The epicenter of all of it is over in Asia. Chinese equity markets down and down hard. In the United States, barely any follow-through whatsoever. S&P 500 futures coming in just a tenth of 1%. In the bond market, yields lower by three basis points, Tom. 174 is yeah. your yield on a U.S. 10-year. What's interesting in all of our discussions here, and you learn this in Davos, and frankly, you learn it on the island of Manhattan as well, that each bank is different, each executive and set of executives at the banks are different, and, of course, all different challenges. At Goldman Sachs, of course, the transition, and they've chosen a guy that used to move ice cream at Baskin Robbins. This is important Are you training. To cause trouble? John, you don't understand Straight this. In, in America, interview. the coveted job in high school, younger high school. Is that right? You went to McDonald's, you went to the yep. others. The glory job was Baskin Robbins ice cream. The ice cream and man? And that's how you moved ahead. David Solomon, Goldman Sachs chairman and CEO. Have you ever had an introduduction like that before? I, I've, I've never. First I, of all, I, thank you for having me. It's but great I've to never, have you here. I've never had an introduction. What was your favorite like flavor? My favorite flavor was Rocky Road. <laughs> okay, there we I go. What was your favorite flavor? An introduction Pistachio. Like okay, okay. I'm not taking part, guys. <laughs> Central banks, the epicenter of the conversation today with the ECB in Frankfurt. For the Federal Reserve, real conversation about what is going on with the balance sheet, David. We'd love your insight. Just your take your opinion. Is that QE or is that not QE? What is that? So the monetary policy that's been around and has been in place for a long time obviously has been an enormous stimulus. When we, when we sit here today and I kind of think about you know, the path forward, I think we're now in a period this year after three mid-cycle uh, mid cuts, for lack of a better term, that I don't expect a lot from the Fed in the context of this year. Obviously the balance sheet's come down a lot over the course of the last couple of years. Um, all of this supports or impacts liquidity in markets. And I think the Fed has done a reasonable job managing liquidity in markets, even with a speed bump back. So I'll ask it again then. Is that QE as they start to buy T-bills and a balance sheet starts to expand again? Anytime the Fed uses its resources to affect liquidity in some mm -hmm. way, shape or form, it's having an impact on markets. 
I'm not going to answer no. the question the way you're looking for me to answer it because I, I, I don't think it's a black and white answer. You, you tell me what QE is. Uh, no, well, we'll ask Jan Hatzius, we'll ask Bill Dudley, but the answer here is we get a lot of different opinions, including the former member of Goldman Sachs, really someone that drove your economics forward, Mr. Dudley, of the New York Fed. We get all these different opinions, and what our audience wants to know is what you have learned from your pros on the desk of those reactions, the movements that you've seen in the short-term paper market. What have you actually observed in the market that gives you information about these balance sheet challenges? Well, I, 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 I think that everyone observed that the Fed had a very, very significant balance sheet investment and it reduced that balance sheet. There have been a bunch of regulatory inputs, the amount of liquidity that banks need to hold right. as the regulations have changed. And at some point, you can reach a supply demand where for a variety of reasons, some of them can be idiosyncratic around right. a moment in time, maybe tax payments, that the supply demand of liquidity changes and the price for short-term liquidity rises. And we saw that. The Fed responded appropriately by saying, we want to make sure that there's enough liquidity in the system. And I think all the banks also, I, I know we did, I can't speak for others, we positioned ourselves so at the end of the year, right. when we thought liquidity might be tight, we have liquidity to contribute to that. Delicate question. Are you constrained by the new set of regulations? Are you happy with them? Or do you need to see amendments so you do finance better? No, we, 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 we are an adapter to the regulatory framework. And so I think as an organization, we've adapted very well over the, regu over the decade to the regulatory framework. And look, the regulatory framework continues to evolve. And so our job is to make sure we can serve our clients well, that we have the right resources, and we do not, see, we do not feel constrained to serve our clients well and run our business based on the regulatory framework. We want your take on the markets and the price action we've seen over the last couple of months. The community, the investment community at the World Economic Forum, pretty polarized on what we're seeing at the moment. We've had a whole range of views. We had Guggenheim, Scott Minard say that it resembles someone of the world's We had Bob Prince of Bridgewater say that the boom-bust cycle as we know it is over. Where do you come down on those two extreme views? Generally not a man of extremes. So, um, so I'd say that there will be booms and busts again at some point, although I don't see one anytime, you know, anytime soon. And, um, you know, as I've been around talking to clients over the last few days, and that's one of the principal things I do while I'm here, you know, I'd, see, I, I'd say I, I see and I hear what I'd call kind of a confident middle-of-the-road view of the current economic environment. U.S. economy's in good shape. Manufacturing sector is a little bit soft. Capital spending has been lower than people would like to see, but the consumer right. is overcompensating for that. Europe, a little bit better. Headwinds of the phase one deal helps a little, but in the distribution of outcomes, overwhelming okay. likely scenario is economy chugs along this Well year. said, but the distributions of outcome, and I remember this from Mr. Varnier in August of 2007, you get a three standard or even 4.1 standard deviation moment. Is Goldman Sachs, and for that matter, your view of global Wall Street, positioned better now, boom, bust, if we get that jump condition, that abrupt movement, as we saw in August of 2007? The banking system's positioned incredibly differently than it was positioned in 2007. There's been an enormous amount of leverage that's come out of the banking system. There's been a huge amount of equity that's gone into the banking system. I also think the risk management activities of the industry have improved materially. So there will be cycles, there will be events yeah. um, that stir markets. Uh, generally, they repeat differently. So the last time there was a significant economic recession, it affected the banks mm -hmm. significantly. I think the banks are in a different position. Yeah. And when we do have you know, trouble um, in the years ahead, which at some point we will, there are a range of things we can see, but I think the banks will be more resilient in the context of that based on the way they're currently capitalized. Let's talk about how you're positioning the bank for the years to come. Sure. Investor Day. I believe it's next Wednesday. Investor Day is next Wednesday. Give us the team. No, Investor Day is right now. Let's begin. <laughs> what are we well, looking we can for begin next right Wednesday. now, but uh, <laughs> come on. Investor day, is, investor day is next Wednesday. It's our first Investor Day ever since yep. we went public in 20 years. Um, I'm a big believer that, that you know, our investors and more broadly our stakeholders you know, deserve transparency around the way we're going to grow the organization, expand our franchise, serve our clients, and ultimately deliver, deliver higher returns for our shareholders. And so we'll lay out a series of initiatives, many of which we've spoken about you know, individually publicly, mm -hmm. but with more information, we'll put out some targets with respect to returns that we can be held accountable to. What targets? Oh, we're gonna put out targets with respect to returns that we can be held accountable to. And 
We'll talk a little bit about how we intend to run the bank so we can deliver for shareholders over time. Let me set up a scenario. Let's say a week before your investor meeting, a competitor comes out and says our new profitability target is 15 to 70% uh, return on equity. Does that make life a little bit difficult for you next week? I, we're focused on running our business. Of course. I, I, don't, I don't think that, 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 that the, anyone came out and said 15 to 70% return on equity. They said 15 to 70% return on tangible equity. Okay. Um, but we're focused on our business. And so our returns and our messages are going to be rooted in what we want to do as an organization. You don't think you'll be benchmarked so we can against deliver, the competition? So we can, everybody's always benchmarked against competition. That's why I asked the question. We're going, to, we're going to deliver what we think we can deliver over time for our shareholders to build a better, bigger, stronger organization. Part of the sell side grilling you on this investor, investor day, and you've got a whole team on this and you've been very experienced as this, is they're gonna talk about strategic vision. And so much of this on investor day is explaining to investors, do you want to expand through acquisition of a bank or just small bolt-on acquisitions that advance Goldman Sachs intellect and technology. What's your feeling on that right now, given the terrific equity markets of the last 12 months? Are you, are you priced out of opportunities globally? Well, I've, I've said this repeatedly that I think, uh, and I come to this from my own experience as a banker, I think anyone, any leadership team that's running a big organization always has to be aware of both, orga of both organic opportunities to mm -hmm. grow and also inorganic opportunities to grow. We're always looking and thinking about things that we think can expand our franchise and allow us to serve our clients more effectively and ultimately deliver is, for shareholders. But the bar for us to ever do something significant right. and organically is extremely high. But on a strategic basis, is that a geographic choice? Obviously, it's a financial choice. But tell me about the, the Goldman Sachs ge geography right now. Is it a Goldman Europe Sachs, vision? Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs is a global firm. I think one of our competitive advantages is we truly are a global platform in the businesses that we operate in. Historically, if you look at our investment banking business, if you look at our sales and trading business, you look at our asset management business, we are a global organization and we have an ability so to operate anywhere in the David, world. David, what's the strategy on wealth management right now? On a Goldman Sachs asset management, what's the strategy right now? So on wealth management or on asset management? I'll take both, please. Well, you asked one and then the other. It's like so Shepard, I'll take you know, <laughs> for two. Um, let's start with asset management. Please. Um, on asset management, we run one of the top three global active asset management platforms. It's an advisory-led business. In other words, we think our clients come to us because in addition to strong investment performance over a period of time, we package it around advice to help them meet their long-term investment needs. We think advice is differentiated and you can still get paid for advice. And that's what our asset management business focuses on. We're also very unique in that when you look at the three largest global asset management businesses, we may be the only one that really in every product category, including alternatives, is really at scale. And so, you know, across liquidity products, across active equity and fixed income, across alternatives, we're at scale on a global basis. And I think for our institutional customers, that's an advantageous position. So when you yeah. look at our ability to acquire assets over the last three or five years, mm -hmm. long-term fee-based assets, we've outperformed relative to people we'd be benchmarked against. David, talk to us about how hard it is to make a strategic decision for the bank that will work over 10 years, not just for now. So 10 years ago, the right decision, some people might say, would be to beef up wealth management and scale back fixed income trading. 10 years later, that might be the right strategic place to be in. But as we sit here now, 10 years out, how hard is it to get that strategy right? To look forward and say, what works now might not work in the future? Well, look, I think that's what CEOs always have to do. Um, and I think the right CEOs make investments to ensure that the competitive position of their franchises strengthens over time. And when you get it right, your franchises mm -hmm. strengthen. And if you don't get it right, you know, over time, you know, the evidence comes forward. So we are going to grow right. our asset management business. We are going to grow and expand our wealth management business. And we think over the right. next decade, those are opportunities that take core competencies at Goldman Sachs, and we can expand on them. David, I want to talk about the sensitivities of the moment. And this comes out, I think, of William Cohan's book on Goldman Sachs. And there's that acclaimed scene, a scene at Scotty's 
over egg salad sandwich. And it's Mr. Weinberg and others that go down to Scotty's and over lunch they do Goldman Sachs business. This is a whole new world now. Tell us about the shift that you've had as a new chief executive officer and this is investor day coming up. Tell us internally at Goldman Sachs the mood as you go to your first investor's day. What's the day-to-day -day mix at Goldman Sachs right now as you move forward with your strategic plan? Well, along with the rest of our leadership team, we're, uh, you know, I'm very privileged, we're very privileged to lead an organization that's filled with extraordinary people. And I think they're excited about the investor day, but I also think the organization is energized by the momentum the firm has to serve our clients holistically through a program we call One Goldman Sachs to really make sure we're delivering as much as we can for our clients broadly. There's a real client service mindset in the organization that this leadership team is really you know, pushing hard at making sure we get right. And when they look at the areas where we're investing, whether it's transaction banking, it's, uh, it's the alternatives business and asset management, it's the expansion of our wealth management opportunities, or it's our digital consumer banking platform, they're excited about the investments and excited about thinking about a Goldman Sachs where more of these businesses make us more, more impactful how new in serving is, our How clients. new is that Goldman Sachs? It's not like Scotty's in the romance of egg salad sandwiches. You years really I don't, I don't remember. Now, this is a really Did important I scene. I, don't re no. I, I read the book, David but I don't there. remember the but scene. But this is an important <laughs> scene of how Goldman Sachs operated within the mythology and legend of the company. Well, I, 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 What's I the speak. new Goldman Sachs look like? I, I, I can't speak to how Goldman Sachs operated historically. Um, going back that far because sure. I wasn't there. Well, go back but six today, weeks. <laughs> you know, today, today, look, we have a very, very young, vibrant workforce that's very focused on serving our clients. Um, we're very, very focused on making sure we continue to have the best, the brightest, the most talented, motivated, driven people to serve our clients well. I think we're in that position. This management team leads with an open, communicative style. I think that's what the organization wants, and I, I feel like the organization's excited mm -hmm. about the direction we're moving in, but we have a lot of work to do, and we have a lot to accomplish, and like any organization, we're focused and committed to getting that done. How do you open up to the consumer at the same time maintain that Goldman Sachs gold-plated branding? Are there no concerns about that? Uh, look, we think a lot about, about our brand and our position, um, but at the same point, I think there is lots that we can do for consumers that makes our brand and our approach, especially on a digital platform, aspirational for consumers. And look, when you talk about consumers, there is a wide swath of people that you can deal with. And, um, and I, I feel good about the way our brands receive. Well, how look, do you one make of the it aspirational? Big, Let's one, talk about that. One of, the big, one of the big endorsements, I think, of our brand is that when we partnered with Apple yeah. around the credit card, they wanted Goldman Sachs on that credit card. And I think that speaks to how you know, our brand you know, is viewed by some out in the marketplace. Well, we, we want to find ways to use that brand right. effectively to serve individuals for their financial needs. And there's no reason, if we do it well, it's differentiated, we ease their pain points, we give them information and resources that allow them to make right. better decisions, that that can't represent that brand with consumers in a very effective way. Are, are you going to take technology at this Investor's Day and drive it forward? Is there another announcement with Apple or someone no, there's, else? There's no, there's, there's, no, there's no big reveal. I've got to make some news here, David. You're, Help you're, me. You're They're in my ear. Make some news. You're not, not going to make a lot of news. It's not going to happen. You're not going to make a lot of news. We will talk about our technology investment. We have... There we have go. some new leaders you know, outside, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the technology yeah, investments we're making, outside. like all financial services firms are making. Yep. We're excited about that. Um, but, but I don't know that I'm going to help you make some great grand you know, curtain-raising news. Um, the Investor Day will, <laughs> will come next Wednesday. I look forward to, yeah, I look this, forward to your feedback. This interview is so over. <laughs> Goldman Sachs, big ready to catch up with you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.